Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 52. So if you haven't opened your Bible yet, please do so, because we're going to be taking a look straight out of the text. But what I want you to understand, at least to begin with, is some background information about this psalm. Now this psalm is a psalm written by King David, and it ultimately deals with a very simple theme, and that's the themes of judgment and salvation. Now judgment upon the wicked, of course, and salvation for the righteous. From the superscription, that's that little title under the heading of the psalm here, we find this psalm was actually written in a very specific context, and it says, if you look at it, it is a mascal of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now that reference comes from 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22, and I'll let you read that on your own time, but it gives us a rather incredible and horrific description of what can only be construed as genocide by a man named Doeg the Edomite. Now David, during this time, is on the run from King Saul. David is believed to be trying to usurp Saul's throne, and so Saul is trying to hunt him down and ultimately kill him, and he's using everything in his disposal to accomplish that reality. Along the way, David stops off in a town called Nob, and he visits with a priest named Ahimelech, which is what we see here today. Now, he asks this priest to inquire of the Lord for him, and he also asks them for some food because his men haven't eaten for days. And so the priest gives him consecrated bread. It's the show bread from the temple. And Ahimelech also gives him the sword of Goliath simply because David had asked for it. Now, Ahimelech has no idea that David is on the run from Saul. It's actually rather important that we get that detail in the beginning. All he knows is that David has told him that he's on urgent business of King Saul. So there is one man, though, who is in this town of Nob, who seems to be in the know, and he happens to show up at just the right place at just the right time, and that's our character named Doeg the Edomite. Meanwhile, we find that Saul is really beginning to panic at this point. He's driven by fear and lunacy. He knows that David is gathering men all around him, and that David's becoming more and more popular. And so while that's happening, Saul's becoming more and more paranoid that David's going to steal the throne from right out underneath him. Saul gathers every one of his servants together, and he threatens them. He says that if you withhold any bit of information against me about David's whereabouts, you'll be branded as a traitor. Well, who comes to the front of the line but Doeg the Edomite? Now, he tells the king, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword Of Goliath the Philistine. At this point, Saul does what only Saul does best. He calls Ahimelech to him and he asks, Why have you conspired against me with David? And the priest is absolutely dumbfounded. He has no idea what in the world is going on. He's not plotting an insurrection with David at all. David's not even plotting an insurrection. So he has no idea what's going on between Saul and David at this point. But Saul doesn't really listen, nor does he really care all that much. 
He tells his guards, kill the priest, and his guards refuse because they won't put their hands out to kill God's priests. But Saul knows the man, just the right man, in fact, for that job. He turns to Doeg and he says, slaughter them. And Doeg puts to death Ahimelech and 85 priests, but he doesn't stop there. Doeg's a real go-getter, if you will. He takes it upon himself not just to kill the priests of God that day, but he goes all throughout the city of Nod, Nob, and he cuts down defenseless men, women, children, even infants, the text says. And then to top it all off, he goes and slaughters all of their cattle. That's just who this man is. After that, he goes about bragging about his heroic exploits. Now, this is a situation that David finds himself in our psalm today. This is the situation he's reflecting upon as he writes this psalm. He begins to describe, ultimately, the fate of a man like Doeg. In a rather masterful way, though, he actually pulls back from the entire situation at hand, and he broadens his contours to not only describe this man's wickedness, but really the fate of everyone who is wicked. He describes in detail the fate that awaits all who the scriptures would call evildoers. More than this, though, David describes the fate of the righteous. And so what we find in Psalm 52 is a rather unique psalm that applies to all sorts of different contexts, and it has throughout the history of Israel and the history of the church, where it teaches us, it reminds us of a rather simple and yet incredibly profound truth. There are two different types of people on this earth, but those people, that is the wicked and the righteous, have two vastly different destinies. In other words, the outcome of their lives will ultimately be different in every conceivable way simply on the basis of who they are, whether they are the wicked man or the righteous man. And so with that in mind, let's turn simply to verse 1 where we see David actually start to unfold this reality for us. Now David begins by asking a rhetorical question. He asks, why do you boast in evil, almighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Now, there's an incredible sense of irony in the text here when he calls Doeg this mighty man. The mighty man, if you know know of it, in the Old Testament, these are men that are known to be great and brave, virtuous men. They not only wield an incredible amount of strength, they carry it in dignity, but they also use that strength to protect God's own people. David had his own band of mighty men, and their exploits are recorded for you in Chronicles and the Kings, but they did some rather incredible things. These were actually good and brave men, though. These were men who had to face giants and hundreds of warriors all at once and more, and yet they did so to prevail over their enemies, to protect Israel, and for the sake of God's people. In other words, they didn't harness their strength for nefarious gain or for poor reasons. Now, Doeg is anything but that, right? You get the description of who he is. He's a bloodthirsty, ungodly coward who took it upon himself to slaughter an entire defenseless town full of people. And yet he brags about it. He's saying as if he's accomplished some great feat of bravery and strength by slaughtering defenseless men, women, children, and infants. But David's question here isn't set in light of the fact that he's just killed a bunch of people. Get that. His question's not set on whether or not he's killed a bunch of people, nor is his question set in contrast to his own mighty men, his own brave warriors. 
Rather, this self-dubbed so-called mighty man that Doeg claims to be is set in contrast of the God whose loving kindness never fails. Immediately, he takes it and puts it right before the God of all this universe. And this is why he says that the wicked boasting of this man is seen as stupidity. Right? He has set himself against the covenant faithfulness of God. God's covenant faithfulness endures all day long, meaning it can never fail, nor can it ever end. And that's the true folly of this man named Doeg. That's the true folly of the wicked, by the way. The wicked boasts of their own wickedness before the God who has pledged his faithfulness to his own people. Right? Just so you know, that's what happens when somebody attacks the righteous. Whenever you hear of a story in a third world country where Christians are killed for their faith, that's the reality of what they've done. It's not that they've simply attacked God's people. They have attacked God himself. Much like a husband takes offense when his wife is attacked, when somebody comes against the people of God, ultimately, God is offended. God is the one who takes it as a direct attack on him, and God is the one who will deal retribution. The reason why the boasting of Doeg is foolishness is that he ultimately positions against God himself and God's faithfulness and God's love towards his people. God has promised to take care of his people. Doeg comes in and kills them. And then he boasts. This is all what happens when somebody threatens God's faithful love towards his people. Right? This is the basis for which everyone who curses Israel will be cursed. And that everyone who blesses Israel will be blessed. At the end of the day, no matter what, God will still be faithful. They can't simply stop that. But it puts things in an con- incredible perspective where it highlights the reality that the wicked ultimately lose. The wicked will lose. Grasp the reality of what's being said here for a second. The term that David uses is God's hesed. That's God's covenant love. That's his serial faithfulness to Israel and to anyone who is his child. It's an incredibly rich word that's used all throughout the Old Testament, but it speaks of God's love and his faithfulness towards his people. But even the word love or faithfulness doesn't really capture the essence of what that word means. Now, you can use any number of mean or words that you want to try and capture the meaning of that, but individually, they all fall short in one way or another. You can talk about God's mercy or his grace, his faithfulness or his kindness, his love, his favor, his providence, and you can talk about all of those different ones, but that still would not capture the meaning or intent of the word hesed. It'd be more like taking all of those words and cramming them together in one word that describes every aspect of God's goodness and his unfailing faithfulness towards his people. All of it, and this is the reality that David is highlighting here, every bit of it is based on God's covenant or his promise. He says God's covenant love, his faithful promises will never fail. They last all day long. God is unable to break his promise. No man is able to undo that promise. Nothing in creation can stop that promise and time can't even put a limit on that promise ultimately. And so he asks Why do you boast, O mighty man? Doeg boasts against the Lord as if he alone is the one man who is the exception to the rule. Hence the rhetorical question, right? Do you think, Doeg, your boasting matters even a little bit? Don't you see? The faithful love of God endures all day long. 
Who are you, almighty man? And what follows from here is just a scathing judgment of all the ways this man boasts in his own wickedness. I want you to notice, though, it's not because he slaughtered a town full of people. That's the low-hanging fruit. That's the easy thing that you and I would all see and we would leap after, right? We would focus on that, but Doeg's much more than a man of violence. In fact, I would actually argue that all of his violence, his slaughter of this town full of people, is merely the fruit of a much bigger problem with who this man is, right? That problem is that he truly is a man who is a lover of evil and a liar, At the heart level, that's the issue with Doeg. He's a man who loves the lie more than truth, and he is a man who loves deceitful gain and riches, this age, every other thing that you could put under the sun in that umbrella, rather than God himself. Everything else flows from that reality. Notice how he starts to describe this here. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. Three very short verses, but pay attention to what's being said. He says, Your tongue devises destruction, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Notice the entirety of what defines him. He's a man of lies. In three short verses, we find a description of a man who was mastered by falsehood, by mastered by the lie. First, he says, his tongue devises destruction, and he's a worker of deceit, right? All that means is that whenever he goes to speak, it's all built around lies. Everything he seeks to do is destroy and to wound, but his wounds are not the faithful wounds of a friend, but rather the flattering kisses of an enemy. In other words, he lies about it also he can inflict a wound, but that wound is never meant to build up, only to destroy. Secondly, it says, he loves evil more than good, and falsehood more than the truth. Notice the point that David makes here. It's not that Doeg has no love for the truth, not that he has no love for what's good, but rather that he loves evil more than good and falsehood more than the truth. So what's that mean? Well, given every opportunity, he will always choose what's evil and what's false. That's what his heart is naturally bent towards. That's what he treasures. The reason why he does this is quite simple. He's able to, through his lies and deception and destruction, expand his own little kingdom. In other words, Doeg's world is all about Doeg. Think about it. He's cozied up with King Saul. Nobody's willing to carry out Saul's dirty work, are they? But Doeg will. In fact, he's going to take the initiative to do things Saul never even asked him to do. But the motive behind it, the reason he does it all, is that he can expand his influence, he can expand his power, his infamy, his money, and more. And we're going to see this in this psalm today. But what I want you to see now is that his motivation for everything is built off of his own self-interest. His motivation is built off of the bedrock of being able to extract everything he can out of life. And by every external appearance, it actually seems to pay off for him. Does that not characterize the wicked this day? Does that not characterize everything that this world seeks to do? Is that you can do whatever you desire? You can have your own little kingdom. You can build up your treasures on earth. And all of these things are worthy pursuits, they say. Finally, notice what Doeg loves. 
He loves deceitful words that ultimately tear people down rather than build them up. That's verse four. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Now the picture being given here in the Hebrew, at least, is that his mouth is gaping wide and he swallows everyone that comes along his path. He seeks to devour and destroy them. But notice that this is a description not given to a murderer, not given to a thief, not given to one who openly mocks and speaks flagrantly against God and his people. This is a man of lies. That's the description here. This is how scripture sees a liar. This is at the heart of every liar. Beloved, when you lie or when I lie, this is at the heart of it. This is how God ultimately sees it. The reality is that you love the lie more than you love the truth if you are a liar. The reality is that it testifies that if your heart is set upon lying, it's not because you ultimately want to do good. In other words, there's no such thing as a good white little lie. You have every desire, according to this passage, to devour, to destroy, to bring what's good to ruin. The reason for it is very, very simple. Who is the father of lies? Who is the one through one little lie destroyed all of humanity and brought it into the painful misery of sin and despair and ruin all through a lie? Sin, chaos, death, judgment, all through a lie. In our home, there is nothing you can do that's worse than a lie. I mean, you can do some pretty big stupid stuff in our house, in our house and we will freely forgive it, and we'll forgive if you lie as well. But the reality is there is nothing that brings so strict a punishment as a lie. And the reason for that is very simple. Lies destroy. But most of all, they attack the truth. We are to be a people known as a people of the truth. God is the God of all truth. Whenever you lie, what do you do but attack the truth? And if you attack the truth, who do you attack but you attack God? That's the reality of this. And all of this characterizes so much of what we as pastors simply try to spend our time speaking against in one way or another. The reality is that every single time, every issue you face in life, and I do mean literally every issue you face, it always boils down in some way, shape, or form to a battle over what's true and what's not. And if you think it doesn't, you're naive. And I mean that in the kindest way possible. I really do. But it's always a battle over the truth. Week in, week out, every single minute of the day, you are in a constant state of battle against a lie the lies of this age, the ultimate question will always be, do you love what's good more than evil? Do you love what's true more than a lie? Beloved, that's, that's literally at the heart of every bit of sin. Right? In some ways, that assault comes from outside of you. This world is, in one way or another, always going to be spewing something that they say is true and that you've got to believe. Right? You, you can't avoid it. You see it in your TV shows, movies, books, but you also see it from friends and family members and coworkers in every which way that you can. The question is always coming down to whether or not you'll believe it or you won't. That's what they're asking you to do. The question ultimately behind that, though, is that will you submit the reality of this underneath the authority of the Bible? 
If what they say is under the authority of the Bible, great. If it's not, though, you've just made another thing your authority. In other ways, though, this assault on truth will come from within you, and you, you know this battle well. It will be born out of the reality that we all lust after different things and desire different things that are part and parcel of what the Scripture calls the flesh. And the question, again, will be if we bring ourselves into submission to the Word of God or if we will satisfy the longings of our wicked and sinful hearts. Again, it's always a battle over what's true. In either case, though, the temptation will be to look upon the lies of this age, whether that's from without or from within, and believe them. And the reason for that is that from a human perspective, it all seems to pay off, doesn't it? You look out, much like Asaph does in Psalm 73, and you see that the wicked flourish. You ultimately see that they've enriched their lives off of a lie. They always seem to be successful. They have more than even your heart desires. They're corrupt. They speak with wickedness. They acted on righteousness. They blaspheme God, and they increase in their riches and ease. And yet, whenever you seem to do the right thing, it flies right in your face, doesn't it? You struggle all the more, and so little by little, time after time, day after day, and week after week, and paycheck to paycheck, you forget. You forget that we are to count whatever we gain in this life as loss. You forget, ultimately, the promises of God. You look and you see that everything around you seems to be much more appealing, much easier to get a hold of, and in the short term, you gain But the reality is that when you come into the house of the Lord each and every Sunday, you are reminded of what is true, that this world is failing. It is dissolving away little by little, and one great and glorious day, Christ will return and usher you into his arms forever. That's at the basis of why we actually come together and gather. We've gathered because of what Jesus has done. But we gather because we have an ultimate hope in the resurrection. We see from a long-term perspective that whatever devices the wicked may scheme after and try to get, it's ultimately very, very short-lived. We can be reminded that all things are working towards that final day of judgment, that this age will be destroyed, that all things will be made new, that God will repay every single man according to his deeds, and only those who have trusted and hoped in Jesus Christ will live. That is the bedrock of our conviction And it's increasingly hard to remind ourselves of that truth when we live in a world of instant gratification. At the heart of embracing this reality, though, is that there are two very different destinies that the Scriptures simply testify to. There is a destiny for the wicked. There is a destiny for the righteous. And if we are those who count ourselves in the company of the righteous simply by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, there is much to hope in, beloved. David has already brought that to our attention in verse 1. He says that it is ultimately foolishness to boast in evil. Why? Simply because God is faithful all day long. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun and every moment in between, God is faithful. Well, now he brings that reality front and center throughout the remainder of the psalm, but he does so in a way that we often don't like to think about if we're honest. He just puts it into perspective here. He says, basically, while the wicked may seem to flourish and build their own kingdoms off of their lies, at the end of the day, it's all very, very short-lived. 
Right, so verse 5 begins this work of reorienting our hearts and minds to this long-term perspective. He says, if you look down again, but God, right, so the first four verses are reflecting upon the evil of this man and what he's trying to do. He says, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. So what's the promise here? But that the man of lies and destruction is that he will face an ultimately swift and terrifying judgment. Right? He says God will snatch him up in an instant and he's going to bring him to his death. And all the different words that he uses here really speak to the finality of it. Right? He's not going to merely die a quick death. God's going to rip him out of the land of the living. He's going to snatch him up in an instant. But more than this, he's going to break him down forever. He's speaking of eternal damnation here. So he says the fate of the wicked is not merely that they die, but that they will die eternally. It's important, though, that you and I see the reality of its ugliness for all that it truly is when he says judgment is coming, because the reality is that it's not this brick by brick destruction or dismantling of something like a wall, but reducing it down to rubble. But just as you think that the destruction is over and you can't break it down any further, it happens again and again and again, infinitely and always, smaller and smaller, reducing it down to a pulverized grit. That's the reality of eternal judgment. And yet it happens forevermore after that. That's what he says is going to happen to this man of lies. But no, this is not simply a fate reserved for a man who kills a town full of defenseless people. The reality of what this psalm testifies to is that you don't have to be that kind of a man in order to suffer the same fate as that man. I want to make that painfully clear because the basis of his judgment is not on the fact that he killed a town full of people, not at least according to this. He will be judged for that, make no mistakes. But what it always boils down to with every person, every one of you in this room, is what you believe, what you hope in, and what you love. Always. That's why Doeg will be judged. In summary, so far, he's talked about how he's just this arrogant man who loves evil more than good. He loves lies more than truth. But at the end of it, what he's going to show us in the next two verses is that ultimately, ultimately, this man loves this age more than he loves God. This is what we now see in verses 6 through 7. So look with me once again. He says, The righteous will see and fear, meaning they will see and fear because of the judgment poured out on this man, and they will laugh, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and was strong in his evil desire. Notice that incredible contrast here, right? Between the wicked and the righteous. Doeg has promised this swift and unending and unmerciful judgment, but the righteous are are ultimately spared from that. That's what he's saying here. And he says there are two results. He says, for one, the righteous are going to see that judgment poured out on the wicked, and they will be brought to an immediate sense of fear. Immediate fear. And that fear is not a sense of simple reverence or respect, but an actual sense of dread. Now, why do you think that's so? Well, the reality of judgment, especially if you see it play out before your eyes, is that 
you recognize the complete and utter holiness of the Lord and his complete and utter perfection in the midst of that and his complete and utter hatred of evil. And that's terrifying because you know that you are an unholy creature before the thrice holy Lord. There is a sense where you see the wrath of God and the natural response is to be afraid. Think of the times that an angel, a mere angel, appeared to men in Scripture. And every single time what was said to them, but be not afraid. And every one of those guys is like, I'm pretty terrified right now. Right? I mean, that's just the reality. They're struck with a sense of holiness. You become afraid because you know that ultimately God's judgment is against the evildoer and that everything in your own heart is evil and wicked. You're unclean. And if you're truthful, you know just as well as I do that what you deserve is wrath simply because even in the deepest, best parts of your own heart, you can be capable of much, much evil. He says the natural response, even of the righteous, is a dread, a sense of holy dread in the fear of that judgment. But what gets produced of this is actually joy. And why is that so? It gives way to joy for two very, very important reasons. Well, for one, if you are the one who is righteous, judgment of the wicked is for your benefit. It's for your benefit, ultimately. The wicked can no longer oppress you. They can no longer take your life. They can't do anything that the wicked are naturally bent towards doing. But for two you recognize ultimately this judgment won't fall on you because you have been spared. You've made the Lord your refuge. And so you're ultimately be brought to joy. And what he says here is laughter, right? Part of it is that nervous laughter, if you will. At least it starts that way. But then you look upon the reality of it. You look upon the judgment of the wicked and you laugh because you see the futility of it all. You see the wicked who stand tall and firm in their evil, who mock and jeer at the faithful, who do whatever they can to make life hard, who smile indignantly at the truth being taught to them. They seem to get away with it all. They enrich their lives off the backs of others. They do what they know the Lord has said is evil, and yet they delight in it. And he says they will be judged. It's all short-lived. You remind yourself ultimately of the truth. You remember, God has promised to judge the wicked and save the righteous. Is that not a beautiful truth if you actually apprehend the reality of what he's saying here? You might be faced with evil on every single side, but God is always and ever going to be your safety and retreat in the midst of that. That's what that means. It doesn't matter how evil this world gets in one sense. It doesn't matter even if they ultimately kill you. Because what comes of it is God will take your dead corpse and bring you to life in Christ. That's incredible. That frees you up in so many different ways from being able to scramble or trying to hedge your bets. Because ultimately, you remember God is faithful to save, and he is faithful to save to the uttermost. You get your biggest joy and delight out of the fact that God is your refuge and safety from his own wrath even. Right? You know that there's this oncoming storm of God's wrath, but because you have made God your refuge, you are now spared from that wrath. You ground yourself in a reality. You're not the enemy of God. Though you may be a sinner and a glorious sinner at that, you are a forgiven sinner. 
That's all that's being said here. That's all that's being shown here is that there's this vastly different destiny all on the basis of who has made God their refuge and who has not. Life in the here and now may be filled with every sort of hardship and suffering, and yet, David says, the Lord is faithful all the day long. That's the reality of the righteous here. He says, ultimately, the wicked cannot touch them. Right? Even if everything goes south, the wicked cannot win in the end. He knows this. This is the source of his joy, is that God himself is his refuge. And yet, in the midst of much evil, he reorients his heart and mind to see that this joy will be made full on the final day when God judges the righteous and the wicked. Doeg, he knows, will be repaid for everything that he's done. Every little lie that he told to the destruction of everyone else, he knows God will vindicate what's right. He knows that God, by his perfect standard of justice, will uphold it, and he will perfectly pour out wrath. David need not seek his own vengeance. But David ultimately recognizes that God himself is his refuge, and he is safe from God's own judgment. And that's your reality, too, if you've placed your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's an incredible truth. The point I'm making with all of this is that there is every expectation in Scripture that you and I will one day see our faith vindicated and made full, and that hope and love will ultimately be vindicated in and through the righteous judgment of God. And for you, that judgment's been poured out on Jesus, right? He took the wrath for you, but the reality of it is that behind all of it is that through the sheer grace and mercy of God, you have been forgiven, You're free from the wrath of God. The joy of your salvation will be made full and complete when you see that there is no longer sin that taints you, no longer sordid and twisted desires in your heart, but that with one heart and mind you will fully, truly love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. But the other part of that reality is that in every instance where wickedness and evil has been done against you, on the account of Christ it will be judged. Every bit of it. Every bit of it will be swallowed up by the infinitely everlasting kindness and faithfulness of God. Every time you've suffered, every time you've been mocked, all the times you've been slandered, all the times you've even simply been passed by, overlooked, or even treated with contempt as if you smell bad. All of the broken promises, all of the times of sadness and despair, every last bit of it will fade away as the faithfulness of your God is being shown to you day after day after day for every moment of eternity. And all that rests upon one simple reality. This is your inheritance if you have made the Lord your refuge. That's the perspective David is looking at with everything here. He says, God is my refuge not only from his own wrath, God is my refuge in this life. God is my refuge from here all through eternity. No matter what this life hurls at me, no matter how many enemies may come against me, God is my refuge. And that means something even in the the day that David was living. What he's looking at, he's seeing that at the heart of the wicked man's judgment is this reality that he did not make God his refuge. He did not ultimately trust in the Lord. Right? He even says that. He didn't trust in the faithful love of God. Instead, he trusted in this age. He trusted in riches. And that played out in a rather profound way, didn't it? 
Everything Doeg has done to this point has been merely the fruit of what he trusted in and loved. Right? Everything that he has done has been to advance that cause. This is what he's placed his hope in. He saw a quick payoff. He saw the ease, the riches. He saw that he could advance his own little kingdom here and now. In the end, though, all that, all that actually accomplished was his judgment. Again, this is why David asked right in the beginning, why do you boast in evil, almighty man? Does not the loving kindness of God last all day Do you not see that though the wicked may lift themselves up, it is only for a season? What will come of it but that the Lord will be faithful? He will judge the wicked. He will reward the righteous. Therefore, Doeg, why do you boast? In one way, shape, or form, that's the question we bring to your mind each and every week. We ask it in a little bit different way, but what we are always pressing is the question, what is the foundation of your hope? What is the foundation of your joy? Is it set on the things in this life, which you know are fleeting and you know will pass away, or is it set upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ, who is your refuge in all things? What is the object that you trust in? The scriptures promise over and over and again that the wicked will be swept away in God's wrath forevermore, that God is the only refuge from the oncoming storm of his wrath, But the righteous will not only find salvation from that wrath, they will flourish in this life. The reason for it is simple. God is the one who cares for them. God is the one who has set his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his love upon them. That's the reality of the contrast that David is showing. Now he brings this to full focus in the final two verses. But understand, every bit of what David has been doing throughout the psalm is driving towards this reality of God's faithfulness. He says there are two different types of people on this earth, right? There are the righteous and the wicked, but these two people have different destinies. One goes to eternal destruction, one goes to eternal life, but that this actually plays out in this life too, he says. It might not in all the ways we think. Remember, David is on the run for his life right now. That's not exactly a health and prosperity gospel, is it? Saul wants to kill him. He's stuck in a dank in dark cave. He's miserable in pretty much every way you can be. And yet he says, in the midst of that, the Lord is faithful and his faithfulness endures all day long. In his immediate circumstances, he knows this is true. But he looks at his life and he sees that this is on display. And so look with me at verses eight through nine, where we see David draw this distinction between the righteous and the wicked in several different ways, but that's what characterizes it all, is what is their hope, what's their trust. Verses 8 through 9, he says, But as for me, right, that's a stark contrast between him and Doeg, but as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever, I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name. Why? For it is good in the presence of your godly ones. Well, notice first off how David makes an analogy once again about a tree. But if you remember, he looks at Doeg, he says he's going to break you down, he's going to snatch you up, and he's going to uproot you from the land of the living, right? He's comparing him to a tree. 
In verse 5, he's described as one he's going to be uprooted and broken down forever. But in verse 8, David says that he is like a green olive tree in the house of God. Right, what a contrast, right? The picture of this olive tree, it really gives an incredibly detailed idea of what it means for the life of the one who is in Christ, who is righteous, in other words. He says they're not only going to have life, but if you know anything about an olive tree, they can last for centuries and they can produce fruit even in the midst of severe drought, right? Its fruit is not only useful for food, but you can make oil from it. You can burn lamps with that oil. You can use it in cosmetics and medicine and ointments, every which way that you can think of. And the picture being shown to us is rather simple when you get the idea of it. Even in the midst of harsh conditions, this thing will not only endure, but it will actually flourish and produce much fruit. The reason for it is rather simple. Notice the location of it. It's in the house of God. It's not in any old location, any old spot. It's in the house of his Lord. The righteous man, he says, ultimately is in the presence of his God and will be forever. There's nothing that can snatch him from the presence of his Lord, nothing that can separate him from God's faithfulness, nothing that can stop him and cut him down ultimately and remove him from his source of life. Like a farmer who tends to his crops, the Lord tends to the righteous. He tenderly cares for each and every one of them. He prunes back his branches so that he bears much fruit and that his roots dig down deep. The life of the righteous man is that he has access to the giver and sustainer of life. And this giver and sustainer of life loves him and is faithful to him. But the wicked man has no such access to God. If you are the one who claims Christ, do you not see how this is so much your reality? Do you see that in every possible way the Lord actually sustains you and cares for you? Again, not in every single way that you and I might tend to think of. We tend to think of all the material ways. But even in that, the Lord has been kind to us. In the midst of hardship and heartache, does he not still care for you? Does he not bring people around you who will weep with you when you weep? Does he not bring the church to bear? Well, they will serve and minister to you in a way that nobody else has done. Beloved, you have no need to fear. You have no need to be driven towards anxiety. You have no need to put your hope in anything that this life has to offer if your hope is in Jesus Christ simply for the reason that God is the one who is the very source of your life and sustenance and he cares for you. The God of all this universe actually cares for you. Again, we think of the cross in terms of just salvation, and we're not wrong to think of it in terms of salvation. Don't get me wrong at all. But Jesus accomplished so much more for you and I and the church in his life and death and resurrection than just our salvation. In every way, we are attached directly to the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing, the scriptures say. Jesus died to give us life. He took on the form of a slave so that you and I might have freedom. He was forsaken by God so that you and I might become sons and daughters of God. He rose from the dead to secure our redemption, but also to give us life and to give us life to the fullest. Again, not in the 21st century American context that we so often want to put it in, Ultimately, to give us joy in the simple reality that Christ has forgiven us, that God is our comforter and keeper, and that we are always and ever in his presence and will be forevermore.
One great day we will be raised with our Savior, and there will never be a single moment in all of eternity intermingled with the despair and destruction and sickness or sin and even death. That's the hope we have. Realize, though, if you trust in Jesus Christ, that's the promise to you in the here and now. You may be beaten down on every side, but nothing, literally nothing can strip that from you. Nothing can remove you from the source of your life. All because God is faithful. Nothing can take that hope from you. Right? That's what David now is going to even show us here, is that the hope of the wicked and the hope of the righteous is radically, radically different. It's all based on God's loving kindness yet again. Right? In verse 7, what do we see? He says, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge. Right? He trusted in the abundance of his riches. But in verse 8, what does David trust in? Again, back to the loving kindness of the Lord. Right? It's back to that covenant faithfulness of God, back to the promises of God. He says, in every which way the righteous man's hope is placed securely in God and God alone. He's not looking to riches. He's not looking to things that thieves and uh, moths can steal and destroy. Ultimately, he says, God is my refuge. God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who will do it. God is the one who will save. Nothing else in this life can give that sure promise to me. I do not place my hope in earthly comforts which are here today or in gone tomorrow. The best this life has to offer is all short-lived, but the loving kindness of God endures all day long. The faithful love of God endures. Do you see things this way? Do you see that God is utterly faithful? It was in light of God's faithful love that David was able to stand firm. He could trust unflinchingly each and every day, no matter what happened, that God would not abandon him, that God would remain faithful to him simply because God is always faithful. The basis of God's promise rests on God himself. God was his refuge, therefore he knew he could trust in him. That same faithfulness of God to David is what you and I have in our God as well. That's the incredible thing, right? We need not worry about everything, or literally anything because God is faithful and his love is set upon us through Jesus Christ. It is always and ever at work at every single moment of every single day. Now, you and I are so beset with our own sins and oftentimes our short-sighted stupidity, and trust me, I'm lumping myself fully in that boat, that we forget these realities. But we can walk by faith knowing that the promises of God will never fail and that in spite of everything else around us and even in spite of our own folly, even in spite of our own sin, they will not be removed from us. Why? Because God is faithful. We may not have a clue what will happen from one day to the next. In fact, we don't. We don't. What we do know is that God is faithful. You can place your trust in your 401k. You can place your trust in the things of this age. You can put it in your house, your job, or anything else this life has to give you. But none of that will deliver you. Not on the day of hardship now, and certainly not on the day to come, when God will judge every man according to his deeds. Nothing in this life will comfort you, beloved. Nothing will remove the dread or anxiety or depression or whatever else that ails you. Nothing will bring you relief from the same old sins that you hate and cannot wait will be ripped from you. 
If God is your refuge, he is not merely your refuge from his own wrath. He is your refuge from everything. Is it not madness and folly to trust in riches, to love evil more than good, and to love a lie more than the truth? Is it not madness? Beloved, God is faithful all day long, whether or not we agree to that reality or not. But the reality is that if you actually understand that and believe it and hope in it, your lips are going to be moved to praise. That's what David does here. Again, he shows just yet another way in which the contrast of the wicked and the righteous is set, all again based on the loving kindness of God. His lips are moved to praise. Verses 1 through 4, notice the contrast here, right? The wicked are described as those who have a perverse tongue. They delight in lies and words of destruction. But in verse 9, what does David delight in? Well, he delights in God, right? He delights in the Lord, the giver of all life. He delights in his refuge. And he says he will give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he has done it. What David means by this is, is rather simple. He's determined to give God praise because his life is built on the conviction of faith, knowing that God has already saved him. Right? David knows the Lord is faithful all the time, and so he looks with certainty on the promises of God. He knows that God has promised that one will reign from his throne forevermore. He's not even on the throne right now, but he says, I'll give thanks to you, Lord, because you have done it. That's how sure David is in the loving kindness of his God, because he knows that God cannot fail. Right? Everything around him suggests that he's never going to get on the throne, but he knows that God is faithful. So what does he do? He praises God. He gives him thanks. And if you think about it, this is our own mindset when you reflect upon the grace of God to us in Christ, is it not? Uh, not one of you has seen the record of your wrongs wiped utterly clean. You've not seen it. But by faith, you believe it. Not one has seen the glories of heaven and the life to come, but by faith you hope in that. You don't merely trust and hope in these things. If you truly believe them, you delight in them. You praise God for them, as we do each and every Sunday, right? We get up and we sing wonderful songs of God's grace and God's salvation and the hope of what is yet to come. And why do we do that? But that we hope in God, right? We know that God is faithful, we know that in the basis of the gospel, it does not rest upon our own efforts or our own might or the riches of this age. It always and ever will rest in the faithfulness of God and God alone. And so we thank him for that. What else can we do? Beloved, even if you have doubts, which I know some of you have, and you come to points of despair, if you keep coming back to Christ every single time, you do so by faith. You may be beat up. You may be mocked. You may be slandered. You may be all of those things in every which way. But you continue to look upon the cross of Christ, even in the midst of your own doubts, and you say, no. That's my hope. God is faithful. God will do it. Even if I muck it up in every way possible, God is faithful. And you continue to endure and you trust that one day God will vindicate your faith and make it a reality, even though each and every day you may stumble headlong and trip over yourself. That's the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Well, the final contrast he shows us here is that 
even out of this, their desires are radically different. Right? He brings us now to a burning focus at the very end of our psalm. In verse 7, again, we saw that Doeg, he's this wicked man. He is the one who's said to be strong in his evil desire. But then notice David's desire in verse 9. Right? David waits upon the Lord with God's saints. He declares God's name to be good. In other words, his hope in God will actually inform what he spends his time doing. He's going to give God thanks forever. Why? Because he's done it. And he will wait on your name, for it is good. The reason for it, again, is he knows that God is faithful to his promises. So he doesn't have to scramble in every which way to try and fulfill what God has said he will do. The wicked man's hope in his riches, his strong desire for evil, lead him to scramble and do everything in his power to amass his own kingdom. He's going to slaughter innocent people if he must. He will spread vicious lies and slander if he must. Not a big deal to him. But the righteous man will not. He will wait on the Lord to accomplish what he has promised. Why? Because he knows that God is faithful and he knows that God is good. He's going to be in the company of the righteous and they too will do the same exact thing. Now think of that. That's, that's what we do each and every Sunday, is it not? When we gather as the church whether we do that in this building or we do it on times where small groups meet or you do it in one another's homes, you do so with the reality that you are trusting in the promises of God. The only thing that draws you and I together is Christ. I don't mean that as if I don't like any of you, by the way. My point is that the thing that has brought us together is the blood unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And when we gather, we gather because we have been gathered in Christ. And when we gather, we do so with the hope of what is to come. We, each and every week, gather with the explicit purpose of reminding one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs what is true, that our God is faithful, that he is good, and that he will fulfill every last one of his promises. That we could be like the wicked man who worries what each day may bring, who worries about his food and his drink and everything else, or... We can gather and trust that the Lord is good, that his word is as it says it is, that he provides for his people, that he will accomplish the redemption of all things at the end of the age, that he judges the wicked, and that he preserves the righteous, all on the basis of his free grace and kindness. You see, this is a true reality in the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. This is probably where you and I fail the most, too. I don't even mean that as a rebuke, but... We get so caught up in the affairs of this life and the love of this age in different ways that we tend to forget the reality that we have incredible hope at our disposal at every waking moment. Beloved, if God is good, and he is, you and I don't need to scramble to hedge our bets, to strive within our own power, to do all sorts of different things that this world is running after doing. We just don't have to do that. We can rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ, we can rest in the fact that God will fulfill his promises to us, that he will give us his spirit to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and draw us to the image of Christ all the more. And the simple question behind it is if we actually believe that. Do we actually have a hope in Christ? <clears throat> when you grasp the reality of God's complete and utter faithfulness, his hesed, his loving kindness, if you will, your concern is not going to be torn between the various things of this life, your concern will be a simple faithfulness to him and thankfulness to him. 
because you can actually rest. You're going to be more preoccupied with proclaiming the gospel to the lost, whether or not they will stay your friends, because you know that's the only hope that they have. You're going to be more concerned with the glory of God than your reputation. At the end of the day, what does it matter, right? You're going to be more concerned with embracing weakness, knowing that God's strength is perfected through weakness, rather than trying to strong arm your way through life. All of it, beloved, will be concerned with obedience to God's commands rather than going our own way. Why? Because we know that God is faithful. We know that God saves. We know that God will carry us very much to the end. And in the midst of this life, all he expects of us is a simple attitude of gratitude and a submission to his word. Our desire won't be for anything else, really. When we truly grasp just how faithful God is, what we love, what we cherish, what we hope, and all of that will be radically different. That's, in essence, the biggest separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? David's confidence in the loving kindness of God informed everything that he did. He's a man who knew the depths of his own heart and the wickedness he was prone to like any other man. He is a man that knew he fell short in every which way. We just went over a psalm, and this is later in David's life, by the way, but we just went over a psalm where David recognized the totality of his being is ruined by sin. That he had only one hope and one hope alone, and that was God. He's saying the same thing in a different way in this psalm. He's saying that God is his refuge. God's his only hope. David doesn't have hope in and of himself. David's hope is in God. He looks upon the carnage that's in front of him, and all he can do is hope in God all the more. He sees 85 priests killed. Men, women, children, infants, cattle, all slaughtered by one guy. And yet, what, what does he do with that? Well, he could take vengeance, but he doesn't. He could go and try to kill Saul, but he doesn't do that either. He waits and trusts upon his Lord because he knows that the loving kindness of the Lord endures all day long. Beloved, every bit of it is testifying to the reality that he has full assurance and hope that God will fulfill his promises to him. He knows that God will put him on the throne. He knows that God will judge the wicked and reward the righteous. But he knows that God will also cause the righteous to flourish in this life. Even if that flourishing looks quite different in the eyes of this world, why? Again, because God is faithful, because God is good, because God is loving. God is sure to fulfill his promises to his people. And when we boil everything down in this psalm to its simplest form, the thing that oppresses home time and time again is that God is faithful to all of his promises, every single one of them. Just as God was faithful to David, God will prove faithful to you if you are in Jesus Christ. What that means, very simply, is that if you genuinely hope and love the gospel, if you trust in Christ for the salvation of your sins or from the wrath of God, you have every reason to hope. And hope is what the gospel is all about. The same thing that runs through this psalm runs through the course of every bit of history. There are two different men, two different destinies. It's true even in this room today. There are two different men and two different destinies for some of you. Some of you have heard the gospel many times and yet you still reject it. 
But the question you will always hear from my mouth is if today you will believe, if today you will cast your faith upon Jesus Christ and make him your refuge, knowing that the wrath of God is coming, that it is sure and set, and that it is unavoidable unless you plead with God for mercy. Will you accept what God has said? You are a sinner deserving of his wrath, that nothing in this world you try to put your hope in will deliver you on that final and great day. Jesus and Jesus alone is Savior. Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. Will you believe that through his death you can actually have forgiveness, that through his resurrection you can actually have life and eternal life at that? But no, this is far more than simply saying these things. It has to actually mean something. Salvation is not some cold set of rational facts that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that he forgave. It's not bound up in the fact that we believe he's some great moral teacher. The reality is that salvation is not found in mere history. It's not found in philosophy. It's not found in whatever else that you and I want to try and bring it to. The reality is that we must trust in this reality. We must hope in this reality. And we must love this reality. Salvation is found by trusting that Christ died for you. Personally, you. That Christ died on the cross to take your wrath because you deserved it. That in exchange, he gave you his righteousness and so now before the Father, you are seen as righteous. That God has saved a people unto himself, that he's actually accomplished something when he died, but again, for you. We, we always like to distance ourselves from these things, but the reality is that we have to look at it and say, okay, in light of the loving kindness of God, who am I? Am I Doeg? Do I trust in my own strength? Do I love lies more than good? Do I love evil, or rather evil more than good and lies more than truth? Do I trust in riches? Do I trust in every aspect of this life which is promised to fail me? Or do I trust in God and God alone as my refuge? That is ultimately the difference between a man like Doeg and a man like David. That's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And how you answer that question makes all the difference in the world because the result is that if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, you actually have much hope. But if you don't, the only thing promised to you is sure destruction for all eternity as a way to David, Doeg. Day after day after day, it will be nothing but misery. But it doesn't have to be that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way of salvation known to us through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that for those who are here today that do not yet believe and do not yet trust in him, that you would cause their hearts and minds to be opened, that they may see him in all his glory and see that he is an incredibly merciful God and Savior. I pray for those who do trust in Christ, that you would once again fill them brimming with hope. You'd remind them of this each and every day of their lives, that they may run the race with endurance, trusting that Christ has completed every aspect in which it's needed to be completed, that their faith in Christ is sure, that he and he alone is the means by which they will be saved. Cause them to run with endurance, 
that they would seek to delight in your commands, that they would not shrink back or shrink away as those who have made a shipwreck of their faith, but that they would always trust in Christ. I pray that you would fill us with our hope in the return of Jesus, where we can see and know every promise made full, that we would trust in your goodness, we would trust in your faithfulness, we would trust ultimately that you do indeed love us as the scriptures proclaim that you do, that we would do all things to the glory of Christ and make Christ known to the ends of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.